Making better decisions in business and in life. Seems like a useful skill, huh? Well, that's what we're going to talk about on this week's episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast, where we visit with Chip Heath, author of Decisive. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast. This is John Jantz, and my guest today is the smart Heath brother, Chip. He is the Thrive Foundation for Youth Professor of Organizational Behavior in the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Man, that's a mouthful. But he and his brother Dan have also written two best-selling books, Made to Stick and Switch. And we've got a new book out uh, now from the Heath Brothers called Decisive, How to Make Better Choices in Life and in Work. So, Chip, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm going to make sure my brother hears the intro to that podcast. Well, I, went, did, I got that right, didn't I? <laughs> no, I think I think Dan's smarter and he's better looking. So. And he he has a uh, he's got a basketball big basketball game tonight too, doesn't he? Yeah, As yeah. We're recording this. I think Duke plays. Is he is he still at Duke? He he's at Duke. I'm not sure he feels the affection for that that he does for his undergraduate school of University of Texas. So oh, okay. Well, they still, yeah, he 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 so, can be on the uh, you know as long as Duke's still in it, he feels the affection, right? That's right, yeah. exactly. So um, you and I were talking a little bit off the air about uh, the, the, the use of duct tape in your first book, you know, which, uh, again, I thought was brilliant. Um, duct tape but, is highly recommended. But, but, but now you've kind of – I think you've – there's like this cool hologram thing on, on this cover. I mean, have, you, have we have kind of upped your game a little bit, huh? Yeah, we, we, we found that the covers of the book are really important. So we had people that picked up Made to Stick, our first book, because – we had duct tape on the cover, and their their daughters, you know, five year old daughter would come up and try to scratch off the duct tape off the cover of the book. And so, this one we we put a, one of those kind of fortune telling balls from childhood, and and there's there's actually a, a a fortune that changes as you move the book back and forth. One of those little hologram things. So yeah. we we're we we're jazzed about that cover idea. Yeah, I bet you the people in production really were jazzed about that too. <laughs> back there, stick, it, sticking those on there one at a time. They regard those as a challenge, a yeah, personal yeah. challenge. So, so um, let's get into. I always, you know, I always like to challenge people on on, you know, titles and subtitles. I mean, what's wrong with the way we're making decisions now? Well, I think if you look at the track record of all of us, it's it's not particularly inspiring. You know, so all of us have made mistakes in our personal life with people we've dated in the past, or you know, with co-workers at work we end up liking people that we think at first that we're not going to like and end up having friction with people that we thought we were going to like and so in people decisions and personal decisions and even in business decisions we make some mistakes so like 83 percent of mergers and acquisitions these are high dollar high analysis decisions 83 percent fail and so if you're the ceo and you've just done weeks or months of analysis on a merger possibility and you wake up the morning that you're about to announce it and you decide you know i don't think we should do this you'd be right five times out of six <laughs> yeah, and so you'd you catch know, a so, lot of grief too but yeah <laughs> yeah you'd catch a lot of grief but you would be right and and that's the paradox that dan and i started out with and and what we were looking for is you know a lot of my colleagues in in business schools have over the years developed very analysis intensive procedures of decision trees and you fold back probabilities and Nobody ever uses those in the right moments for a decision. And so what we were looking for is a simpler, compact set of things that you could do for any decision that you really care about, but in the context of 
five minutes or half an hour as opposed to days and weeks of of running numbers. Well, and and let's get into those those four kind of tangible sections. But but let me ask you this. In some of the research that you did, did you find that, that a lot of decision-making is really just a habit? I mean, we, you know, even if we make bad decisions, we tend to make them over and over and over again in the same way? Yeah. I mean, the last book that we did was on, on changing behavior. And so a lot of a lot of bad decisions are do have that characteristic of changing behavior, that there's that emotional side of us that you know, likes the Oreo cookie and gets used to having the Oreo cookie in the afternoon with the coffee. And when it comes time to go on the diet, it's hard to break that habit. And it turns out that good habits are also possible. And so what we were trying to do in this book is suggest a process that people could use that would form some good habits uh, whenever we need a really important decision to be made. And you, one of the things I admire about your guys writing um, is is you just tell so many rich stories. In fact, sometimes it's just kind of story after story to uh, to make your points. And so you, you've got some uh, some really interesting stories in there. And we'll get to David Lee Roth in um, in, in, a, in a minute. But let's go over those four. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong. Um, four kind of key points, and maybe you can just touch on them, and then maybe we can even apply them to you know some kind of everyday type of decisions that that people have to make in their lives. Um, yeah. So, so I, I, I don't know if I want to give the whole framework away to your readers, but let, let's go through it. Let's go through it quickly. But um, we we first talk about widening your options. So there's that stage where you're considering alternatives, and on average, a lot of people, for most decisions, it turns out we consider maybe one alternative, and that happens in business and in personal life. And so considering two is actually turns out to be a big improvement according to some research studies. Yep. And so. Um, Consider more alternatives. Second principle is once you've got the alternatives, you've got to collect information about them. So we talk about reality testing your assumptions, and you know instead of instead of just sitting in the context of your own mind and thinking about what might be right, can you go out in the world and experiment your way into something? That's something that the entrepreneurs that that you work with and communicate with are really good at. That corporate America desperately needs to learn. Yeah. Uh, there there have been studies that show that the the typical Corporate leaders' response to a marketing issue is to is to go out and collect some data, and the typical entrepreneur's response is go out and sell something, yep. and which which is going to give you the better reality test of the world. Um, third principle is that now you've got some alternatives, you collected some information. To make a decision, it sometimes helps to step back a step and look at the broader picture, and we call that attaining some distance. Um, you know, we tell people sometimes we're in the midst of a decision that you ought to sleep on the right, decision. Right, right. And that's, that's a way of getting some emotional distance from the turmoil in your mind the yeah, night before. Yeah, don't hit send quite yet. That's right. Don't <laughs> hit send quite yet. Um, and then the fourth principle is to prepare to be wrong, which is which is not a recipe for defeatism, but it is saying that very often when we predict the future, we're overconfident that we, we know what the future holds. And we're actually in a better situation to be calm and confident if we prepare to be wrong up front by considering, you know, if things go wrong in particular directions, what steps could we take now to avoid that? But also we can prepare to be wrong on on the upside by saying, you know, suppose that the world is much better than we ever expected. Are we prepared to take advantage of the success that we may have? And so broadening out people's ideas about, what the future may hold is is an important part of that final part of the framework. 
Well, it's interesting. I mean, as I listen to e you explain each of those, I mean, what you're really kind of addressing, too, are a lot of the ways that people, you know, make bad decisions, um, you know, the opposite of, you know, I, I think in terms of, <clears throat> I'll, I'll throw out a kind of an everyday, and sometimes I end up telling on myself, you know, in some of these things when I'm interviewing guests, but I'm, I've never had a great track record at hiring people. Um, yeah. And and a lot of the, you know which is a decision right, um, and a lot of it's because I tend to gravitate towards people that I just kind of like when yeah. I meet when I meet. And explain to me why that probably gets me in trouble. Well, hiring is kind of the prototypical prototypical decision that a lot of people struggle with. Um, we found a survey um, that a prominent headhunting firm had done of something like twenty thousand executive level placements. So these are you know kind of C-suite or the step right below C-suites in organization. You hire a headhunter, you do an elaborate search, you consider multiple candidates. And what they found is that 40% of those candidates either leave on their own or are kicked out within the first 18 months. Now, that's a tragedy. It's a tragedy for the person who's devoted their career to taking a new position. It's a tragedy for the organization that desperately needs somebody filling an important bench spot in, in the organization. And so hiring is just hard in general. But if you think about, you know, that clicking with somebody and liking them, that's a great example of what psychologists call a domain where confirmation bias kicks in. And confirmation yeah, yeah. bias basically says that if we have a hypothesis or if we have a way that we want the world to turn out, we're really good at marshalling facts and evidence to support that decision. And so if we just like the person that we're interviewing with, we're going to look at their resume and see the good things. We're going to discount or ignore the bad things or the warning flags. And so one of the aspects of reality testing your assumptions that we talk about in the book is why not instead of you know sitting back and interviewing somebody, why don't you give them a little test, You know, give them an assignment like the one that they would be doing on a real job and use their performance on that assignment as a way of assessing whether they're a good match as opposed to our reactions after, you know, an hour long conversation in an office. Yeah, that that idea of of, you know, supporting our own biases and and like you said, almost painting the picture that we want to see. Um let me let me push back a little bit on that as I mean, don't we also sometimes you know, is is it our biases? I mean, aren't our biases also sometimes based in experience and maybe even wisdom uh, at at times? Yeah, definitely they are. And there, there's been a lot of research on where you should trust your gut. And unfortunately, the, there are classic situations where you should do that. And the recipe that the literature has found is if you've had 10,000 hours of experience in a domain and the feedback in that domain is quick and clear, you should trust your gut. So if you're an NFL quarterback and you're in the middle of a play and your gut tells you, to go with a different receiver than you start out with, you should trust your gut because you've had 10,000 hours of experience ranging from Pop Warner football all the way up through college and to the NFL. You've had lots of experience. The feedback is quick and it's painful, and so you've probably learned the right thing. And so in that situation, you trust your gut. You know, weather, weathermen making a prediction about the weather tomorrow, feedback is quick and clear. They should trust their gut if they want to have the feeling they ought to deviate from the model. But none of us have 10,000 hours of experience hiring people. And, and so the deceptive thing about our gut is our gut is always giving us answers 
And there are only certain times that we should trust those answers that our gut is rendering. Uh, the other times we ought to take it as input, but then test it out. Let me flip this around a little bit. Um, you, you are talking about basically how you know I can make better decisions, right? Well, are there are there people that might actually understand the research you're talking about and the, and how poor we are at making decisions and actually use that against us, if you will, uh, to to maybe make a sale or, you know, present, uh, present themselves in a job interview. Um, talk to me. What's your thought on that? I, I certainly think it's, you know, there, there are people that are good at doing that. You know, we call them used car salespeople. Right. And we call them, you know, it, it turns out that the, the single most lucrative um, part of the electronics retail business is the, the, the post-purchase insurance that you buy. And the margins on this are just incredible. Yeah, like people so are paying seventy five, eighty percent is all commission or something, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and the the reason they sucker us into doing that is at the moment we've just bought our flat screen TV and they say, Well what happens if something goes wrong? It's really painful yeah. at that moment <laughs> to imagine losing that television. Now, I've always thought it was a little ironic that at the moment they've just sold us a product for a thousand bucks or Five thousand bucks. They're saying, by the way, this product is really breakable. <laughs> right. You know, it's like, what? Why would they advertise that at that moment? But you know, at that moment where we're emotionally attached to that thing, thinking about losing it is really painful, and people end up paying outrageous commissions on the insurance to to have the mental picture going forward that they're safe from losing their their valuable purchase. Yeah. So I, I hinted at the David Lee Roth um, story that you have in the yeah. book, and, and uh, I, I really found that to be fascinating. And, I, and, and I'll bet you there are a lot of, you know, we, we think of these artists as, you know, being flaky and creatives and don't run good businesses. And, and you really have a, a really interesting take on the decision-making process that, uh, that David Lee Roth, I don't know if you'd say used or, or is a process that, that the way you explain it, but you want to tell that story? Yeah, so, you know, I'd always heard the story, you know, when Van Halen was at its heyday and you got Jump in Panama and Hot for Teacher, you know, it was a classic touring band. And they would show up at a show with with nine semi-trailers full of equipment when the typical rock and roll band might show up with three. You know, so it was an elaborate production. And so every few days they're moving to a new location, a new venue, in a new part of the country, and there are always worries when you walk in about did did people do the right things to prepare for the show? Um, and so, you know, they had this thick contract that was filled with, you know, very technical specifications. We'll have 15 amperage voltage sockets at, you know, evenly spaced at 20 foot increments delivering 19. Amperes. I'm making all that stuff up because right, right. my electricity. It doesn't matter. I think you're telling. You know, I think you're telling. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But it, but it, but you you read it. You, you and I would read that contract and have that same reaction. It's like I don't understand any of this stuff. Usually, Ross said it's like reading a foreign language, like Sanskrit or Mandarin or something. And and so there were always these concerns that you know, did people really read the contract? Did they do what they were going to do? Now, in the meantime, Ben Halen not only was technically complex in their ship known as partiers. Right. And and you know, they they raised partying to an art form. So at one point David Leroy said, you know, anybody can throw a television out a window at a hotel. But what if you got enough electrical cords so that the television would stay on all the way down <laughs> to the smash in the pool? Yeah, you know, so 
so there, there are partiers, there are divas. There was this rumor that circulated at one point that Van Halen was so so arbitrary and egomaniacal that if they walked into the backstage area and they saw brown M&Ms in the M&M bowl, they would freak out, trash the dressing rooms. And, and it was one of these kind of stories that you hear and you think that's just that's just like a rock and roll diva. You know, it's just these guys are so so idiosyncratic and creative stuff is, is going off in crazy directions. They just respond in crazy ways. Well, here's the story that we found from David Lee Ross autobiography that changed our opinion of, of him. He said, in that contract that was really thick, about halfway down, there was buried a clause, Article 126, and what that clause said is that there shall be no brown M&Ms in the backstage area upon pain of forfeiture of the deposit for the show with full compensation, right? And so he said, you know, you show up to a new location and you walk in the door and you don't know if they've read the contract, but you walk into the backstage area and you look at the bowl of M&Ms that's always there in the backstage area. And if there are brown M&Ms in the bowl, you have to line check the entire contract. It's guaranteed you're going to arrive at a technical error. They just, they didn't read it. And, And I love that story because you think David Lee Roth is a diva, and actually, he's a decision-making expert. And the concept that we, we cite in the book is David Lee Roth has said a tripwire, which is a way of waking yourself up in the flow of experience and saying, you know, I've got to, I ought to make a decision here. And, and so all of us have projects that we've pursued for too long or invested too much money in or too much time in. And what we really need is a David Lee Roth-style tripwire to say, you know, if we blow past $5,000 or $50,000 in this project, or if we, if we spend more than three months doing this and we haven't had any results, we got to wake up and say, wow, this is one of those situations where I need to think again. Yeah. I better line check my, my goals and agendas. Well, but, and, yeah, and, and, that's one of my favorite stories in the book. So thank you for letting me yeah, it's, it's an Yeah, it's an awesome story. And I think that it really, you know, it does kind of point to how uh, a lot of times we can get so invested uh, in a decision we've made that, you know, you not having that, what you're calling tripwire, you know, is, is really what might take people, you know, to their, to their demise, you know, in some cases. Um, right. so one of the things I found really interesting, you were talking about wide, you know, I'll touch on a couple of the, the two elements, um, widening your options. And, you know, a lot of times, uh, what I've found is that, uh, you know, one, one of the things I work with a lot of businesses on is, is really trying to narrow their focus on you know who they want to work with is what it essentially comes down to you know we call it their ideal client and it's funny how often uh, they'll sit there and kind of go well i don't know you know this or that and they're kind of hem and haw and then i say okay who don't you want to work with Mm -hmm. um and it's amazing how often that will turn all the light bulbs on because i i do think that that sometimes and you talk about that idea of considering the opposite being one of the best ways to come up with uh, a, a list of some new options yeah yeah i love that technique i'm going to borrow that I think widening your options is good in terms of your methods of getting towards a goal. And and I think what you're doing really effectively is forcing people to focus in on what are your core priorities? What are you really good at? What's your competitive advantage? What's your product really about? And that's a stage in the process where you really want focus. Mm -hmm. You really want your goals to be focused. But you want your strategies for getting there to be wide. And and what the research says is that the typical strategy decision in an organization, whether it's a business or a nonprofit or a, 
or a government organization, typically people are considering one alternative. It's kind of thumbs up, thumbs down. Should we add in the hospital, should we add the detox units or not? In the in the government organization, should we use should we revamp our fraud detection system for Medicaid? Uh, and in businesses, like should we acquire this company or not? Yeah. It's not should we acquire one of these three different possibilities. And as soon the research says that as soon as we're starting to think of three different ways of approaching our goal, we just become smarter and, and in fact counterintuitively we become faster. Kathy Eisenhart, a professor at Stanford, did this great study of top management teams in Silicon Valley, and she found that the management teams that were considering multiple options simultaneously were actually faster in responding to market market changes because, you know, number one, they've thought about the structure of the world and different alternatives for tackling it. They, they have a backup option if the first one starts to going south. And so as opposed to sinking good money after bad, they just jump to the the next best alternative. Yeah, and it's it's a little bit of it's a little bit like that approach of of knowing where you want to get, but not really being so attached to how you get there. Yeah, um, and I think that in business that, that that's that's interesting. I love that uh, that that study or the results from that study. So um, I want to end up on a, a, a topic. Um, my mom grew up in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Yeah, and so uh, I have heard the word ooch before. Oh wow! You're one of the few people that we found that is, is has a live sighting of the word "ooch." My mother used to use that word, um, and it was usually when she wanted us to get get us to do something faster that that we were they were ooching. Yeah, the the place that we picked it up is from a firm in the South. It's uh, called National Instruments, located in Austin, Texas, and they have this phrase that we just fell in love with called "ooch before you leap." And so National Instruments is kind of the Apple computer of uh, measurement devices. They have hardware and software that work really well together. And, in fact, it's high-tech enough that, you know, when they discovered the God particle a few few months back at the CERN super collider, mm, right. they ran a lot of the measurement for the God particle on National Instruments instrumentation. But it's easy enough to use that they built a version of it into a Lego robotics kit. I think it's called Mindstorms. So for you know, if you want to spend 200 bucks, you can buy your, your child a, a robotics, a working robot kit that you can program with software that is essentially a, a scaled-down version of the National Instruments software. Cool. And so they're always making decisions about entering new technologies, um, new kinds of hardware, new kinds of extensions with their software platform to integrate the new kinds of hardware. And what they say is that we need to test our way into a market, to experiment our way in the market into a, in a small scale before we leap into that market and make the big investment. And so I love that, that combination of, you know, experiment your way into it before you leap. One of my favorite stories uh, in the book is carsdirect.com. They were having one of those discussions that we always have in in entrepreneurial organizations about whether there's a market there. And so they're saying this is the early days of the Internet, and nobody had ever sold something as expensive as a car on the Internet. I mean, we were trading right. Barbies. and yeah, I, I, I actually kind of remember that, thinking, wow, somebody's going to send a $10,000 check through the, you know, through the Internet? Yeah. <laughs> and, and so what they decided to do is instead of sit there and debate in their own heads or in their own conference room, they would actually get out and hooch. And so they, they said one night, we're going to set up a website, we're going to advertise it, and we're not even going to do an elaborate back end. It's going to be, you know, you click on this button to buy this car, there is going to be a person that will respond to you with that car. 
And and so they, they set up the website, and in the first night they sold three cars. <laughs> now, now talk about it was almost too too much of a success. We talked about that earlier. Are you prepared for the success that you, <laughs> that you could have? Um, but, you know, what a remarkable what a remarkably fast market study that was. It's like you don't have to debate for two weeks about whether this is possible. In one night, you got really strong market signals that this is something that people do. People send a ten thousand dollar check through the mail to to work this. Well, so we've been we've had been having such a great time telling these stories. First off, we're out of time. I'm talking uh-huh. with Chip Heath uh, uh, about decisive. One of the things we really didn't probably touch on enough is, I mean, I think what you really are trying to present here is a framework that can, you know, can be dialed up really almost any t- as a process really uh, for decision making. Uh, you know, we talked about some big decisions. You know, maybe hiring something, but I mean, you even tell stories about, you know, is this the right person I should be dating or not? You know, I mean, just all the way down to a, a framework for, you know, really kind of everyday decision making, too. So uh, a great, great addition to uh, to really even the self-help genre almost. Yeah. Well, what we were hoping is that we could give people practical things that they would use and practice often enough that it, it does become that habit, in, in this case, a good habit, as opposed to the bad habits that we have in other parts of our lives. Well, so um, have you put together, obviously the book is available anywhere that uh, people buy books in any format that people buy and consume books now, but um, have you put any resources or anything, uh, any of your studies up uh, somewhere on a special site? Yeah, you bet. If, if you log on to heathbrothers.com, you can read the first chapter of Decisive for free, and then it's, uh, we do require a, a sign-up, but if you sign up, you can also get access to lots of resources. We've got podcasts on um, being more decisive for, for those of us who struggle with indecision. Uh, we've got podcasts on on a couple of elements of the book, and we've got workbooks to work through with your organization if you're facing uh, a major decision. So we, we hope it will be really useful. Well, Chip, uh, thanks as always. I, I think I like this book, but I don't know. It, it doesn't. It doesn't have duct tape. Oh, well, no. I was. It was supposed to be. That was supposed to be humor, you know. On on. Making, <laughs> I, I just can't decide if I like it. But, but. I do. I do. <laughs> uh, thanks so much for joining me. Hopefully, we'll we'll see you out there on the road. And uh, again, I'm I'm certain another bestseller uh, in line for the for the Heath brothers. Thanks for having me.